Thank you so much to the band for leading us in worship, for Keith for your prayers. Okay, we're going to have another meditation tonight. If I can please have the uh, presentation up. Okay, so this is the second time in our history that I'm doing a meditation in the evening, which is a little bit different from a sermon. So don't expect a, a sermon tonight. We're going to try and quieten our hearts before the Lord and just reflect on his word and pray that he will minister to us. So Zephaniah 3 verse 17, a God who quiets us by his love. Whoops, got to get. Okay, just a little bit about biblical meditation which I trust that you do practice from time to time. It's as we meditate on God's word that we really get to grips with it and our convictions grow and our hearts are stirred. I just want to emphasize that meditation does revolve, or does involve some amount of repetition, especially biblical meditation. We are not emptying our minds and trying to suck something out of nothing. We are meditating on something, and that is God's word as it reflects God himself. So a meditation is really where we slow down, we focus, and we contemplate and consider what is before us. We, we take a verse and we turn it over and over in our minds. We read it, we reread it, we consider it until we are gripped by the passage. A lot of commentators, when they um, comment on verses speaking about meditation, they use the image of chewing the cud, something that you just do over and over in your heart and mind until you really come to grips with the passage. You are stirred and you are convicted by it. So that is what we are going to attempt to do together tonight. Here is the passage that we are going to look at. Zephaniah 3 verse 17 from the Pew Bible, which is the ESV translation. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Now, just by way of introduction, um, I just want to mention, as we come to a verse like this, I want to say that this verse, Zephaniah 3 verse 17, applies to the redeemed only. It only applies to God's saved people. Why do I say that? Well, if we look at the context from verse 11 to 13, verse 11 is very important. It says, on that day, on that day, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. But for then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones. In other words, God is going to take from this people, he's going to take out the wicked, he's going to remove them, and he says, I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord, those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. So you can see what God is doing to Israel. We know that the nation was largely corrupt 
and disobeyed God, God is now going to remove from their midst the wicked, the proud, um, those who lie. He's going to remove from them and he's going to leave his redeemed, a humble people who seek after God. And that is to whom this promise in Zephaniah 3 verse 17 applies. Because look, it's repeated again in verse 16. On that day now, it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. And here is our verse. The Lord your God is in your midst. So it is to this Jerusalem and to this Zion that is redeemed by the Lord that this promise applies. And so when we come to the verse itself, when it says the Lord your God is in your midst, it only applies to God's true people. If you are not a believer this morning, I mean this evening, then this verse is not for you. You cannot take this verse and apply it to your life. But if you are a believer, if you have given your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, then he has done a wonderful work in your life then this promise and this verse is for you and it is a personal word to you and I as we are going to meditate on it tonight. Okay, just another introductory issue is the translation issue. So, the ESV is what it is in front of us there. That um, phrase in red there in the ESV, it says... And he will quiet you by his love. The other, quite a few of the other versions, for example, the NASB says, and he will be quiet in his love. So the ESV, what it basically is telling us is that as we consider God and we consider his love, that we will be quieted by God's love. But the NASB and quite a few other versions say that God will be quieted in his love. And what that means, what the NASB and those other versions are saying is something like this. That as God loves his redeemed, there is going to be a quietness in him. And that means two things. Number one, he's not going to speak out in judgment and rebuke against his people. He has dealt with their sins, and so he is going to be quiet from that point of view. The second aspect, though, is a little bit deeper, is that God is in effect at peace with the way in which he has saved his people. He is satisfied in those he has redeemed. And there is a wholeness in his being as he considers those he has saved. The way that he has saved sinners is in harmony with his character and his holiness and his justice. And there is no violence done to his holiness when the way that he saves people. So, which translation is correct? Is correct? We don't really know. The verse could be translated either way. And yet, I'm telling you that I don't believe that there is much difference. It actually amounts to the same thing. If the NASB is more correct, what would the first implication be for us? 
If God is quiet in his love and the way that he has saved us, if he is satisfied and he is at complete peace in his being, then wouldn't the first theological application be that we should also be quiet in his love and the way that he has saved us? And we should also be satisfied and experience that wholeness and that quietness um, as we experience God's love. So I believe that whichever way we translate it, we would come to the same application. And so I'm going to then stick with our Pew Bible and our translation. Um, this, morning, uh, this evening is, as it is there before you, we are going to consider he will quiet you by his love. So we're going to come now and meditate on this passage together. Meditation, as I mentioned last time I did this, does require quite a bit of effort from you. So if you're used to um, sitting and just listening to a sermon, a meditation is a little bit more is a little bit different. You do really need to focus your heart and mind. Often in a meditation as well, you need to be prayerful. Lord, please teach me in a deep way from your word. And to that end, let us just pray now as we are about to focus on this verse. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the Holy Spirit who is very God and who dwells within us, within your people. And we would plead for the Holy Spirit then to do this work in our hearts and minds now. We would pray that you would speak to us powerfully, that you would help us to focus with every fiber of our being to focus on you and your word and to fight, Lord, to fight distraction, to fight tiredness and to come to you pleading for your gracious mercy, your illumination, and your encouragement. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, just four thoughts tonight from this verse. The first thought is this, a God who is very close. Look at the text before you. The Lord your God is in your midst. I actually love that, that word. Speaking about being in the very center of things, not on the periphery. Whatever Zion, Israel, Jerusalem, or you and I are enduring, God is right there in the midst of it, of our lives. Perhaps a, a good paraphrase would be, he's in the thick of it, right in the middle. He's not distant and he's not removed. The Lord your God is in your midst. He is right there with you at the heart of what is happening in your life at the moment. I don't know what is happening in your life at the moment. The joys and the sorrows, the Lord is right there in the thick of it. That is what that verse tells us. 
How is God with us? Is he with us as a, an advisor, just as an advisor? Oh, this is happening in your life and this is what you should try and do. Is he there just as an inspiration? Or maybe is he there as a philosopher, just to give you a particular outlook on what is happening in your life? No, look at the verse carefully. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. The picture uh, in the Hebrew, is, is a mighty warrior who will save. Who will save. In other words, God, as he presences himself in our lives, he is not just an advisor or some form of inspiration to us. He's not a, just a philosopher um, spouting forth some pithy sayings about how we to endure life. He is a mighty warrior in your and my life, and he is able to save us in whichever way we need saving. He's not impotent. He is not weak. He is able to accomplish whatever he pleases in our lives, no matter who the enemy and no matter how powerful they are. Whatever you and I are facing, the Lord is mighty to save. He is a warrior, and that's how he presences us in our lives. Are you battling with something at the moment um, in your life, something that is concerning you, bringing you sorrow, perhaps distress in your life? What this verse says is that the Lord your God, a mighty one, is right in the midst of what you are enduring. He knows the sorrow on your heart. He knows your distress, your concerns, and he is right in the midst of your life. He is not powerless and he is not impotent. He is able to save if he so wishes to save you from your distress to help you through your distress, in whichever way you need his help, he is there with you. The second thought from our verse tonight. A God who delights himself in you. He rejoices in you. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. Isn't that amazing that you and I bring joy to the heart of God? I'm going to say that again because as maybe even as Reformed people, we don't often think about ourselves in that way. We know our sin. You and I bring joy to the Lord. Look at that word gladness there. That, that word speaks of a sincerity and a genuineness. It's not as if the Lord has said, oh, well, I've made a covenant with these people, so I've kind of given my word that I need to be their God, and I better live up to my word and say, oh, so, okay, I'm going to be with them in their midst, and I'm going to try and be joyful about it. No, that, that is not the idea. It is the exact opposite. The Lord rejoices over you. 
with gladness. It's a sincere rejoicing and a genuine delight in you. Isn't that incredible? And so we start to build a picture. God is present with you and me right in the thick of our lives, in the thick of it, in the middle of it, our joys and our sorrows, the things that you're anxious about. He is there as a mighty warrior who is with us, and he genuinely delights himself in you. He's not reluctant about it. It's not something he has to do. You and I genuinely bring joy to him. A third thought for tonight. A God who quiets you, a God who quiets you by his love. He will rejoice over you with gladness and he will quiet you by his love. I do not know of many Christians that I can describe as having quiet hearts. I do not know too many Christians. It is fairly rare. Generally, generally if you look at the state of our hearts, we are, fear, we are filled with anxiety, we are often fearful, sometimes even discontent. We are dissatisfied, sometimes even complaining. We find ourselves, even as God's people, complaining. And we just never seem to find rest in our lives and in our hearts. Just occasionally, you come across a Christian that I would describe as having a, a quietly consistent heart. They have let God's love truly satisfy them. And as they go through deep distresses, joys, sorrows, you find that there is a consistent peace in their lives. They have learned to let God's love quieten their hearts. They don't get anxious easily. Even if they go through trouble and trial, you could say that their heart is at rest, trusting in the Lord through their difficulties. Is that you? Is that you? Have you come to a place where, and I know some of you are going through deep things, things that would bring sorrow in your life. But can you say that your heart is quiet before the Lord? You are at peace. You are content with what he has done for you. And you steadfastly trust him. I know some missionaries who are like this. As I speak to them, they go through some hectic stuff. And there's just a deep, abiding joy and peace in their hearts. And I can tell you that Christians like that are fairly rare. And so just, have you learned? Have you learned to quiet yourself in the love of God? 
It is not make-believe. We're not just trying to quieten ourselves because it's a good thing for us to do or there's the positive thought achieves tranquility. Look at the picture in that verse again. Focus on it. The Lord your God is in your midst. This mighty one who can save, he is right in your life now. Whatever you're going through, he is there. And he genuinely rejoices in you. He is not mean towards you. He is not withholding any good thing from you. And he has a deep love for you. And that love ought to quieten our hearts. Is it possible to have a quiet heart before the Lord? I would say to you that it is sinful not to have a quiet heart before the Lord and his love for us. Because when our hearts are not quiet, it is essentially a matter of distrust. We actually do not trust that he is either with us or that he is mighty or that he genuinely delights in us. We need to practice this so that when the world looks at us going through difficulties, they see believers who have a quiet, restful heart before the Lord because they trust in him. Our last thought. A God who sings over you. A God who sings over you. So if this verse ended right up until where we have got now, and he will quiet you by his love. And there was no last clause. This would be a spectacularly comforting verse. It would actually be amazing, wouldn't it? And yet this last clause in this verse catapults this verse to amazing heights so that my assessment and a whole lot of people is that this verse is unparalleled in the whole Bible. Even the New Testament, it is unparalleled in expressing the degree of delight and rejoicing that the Lord has in you. It is one of the Everest verses in the Bible, one of the highest peaks Look at those words. He will exalt or, or rejoice. I've kind of thought of this as I've worked my way through this verse. This is harper rejoicing. He will exalt, exalt. He will exalt over you. It's, it's a harper rejoice. And how will he do that? With loud singing. God singing about you and me. He has a song in his heart about you and about me. I have to confess to you that it is extremely hard for me to identify with this. I struggle to accept that God will have a song, a song about me in his heart. I think we are aware of our sin and I do understand that as God is singing here for joy, he is singing in his heart, 
I do understand that he is singing about the salvation that he has done in your and my life. But it's still about you. Look, it's still about you and me. He will exalt over you with loud singing. Think about that. Let's talk a little bit about serenading someone. Okay, so the typical scenario is here is this guy and he just loves this lady. He's fallen in love with her and he's stoked, he's um, smitten, he's, he's gone. And maybe she's not interested in him. Or maybe he has done something to offend, he has done something to offend her and he wants to win her back. How is he going to do that? So one evening he goes under her window and he takes his guitar and he serenades her. He sings a song to her. And usually in the movies this works. Almost every time in the movies the, it wins the lady's heart. Why? Why would this win the lady's heart? Do you know when somebody sings a song about you, or for this lady, when this guy sings a song about her, it tells her a number of things. It tells her that she's really special. She's really special to this dude. It tells her that this guy has been thinking about her night and day even to the extent that he's written words and a poem and a song about her. This is deep kind of stuff for this guy. Not only that, he then puts it to music so that these words about her he can sing in his heart and then he can sing it to her. And it shows a depth of affection and of joy that goes to the depths of somebody's being. And that's why it wins her over. Nobody's ever sung a song to me, okay? Probably most of you. Um, if I had to do that to Kerry, she'd run away. Um, you obviously need a, a talent for something like that. But do we understand what it means to sing a song about somebody? to have a song about somebody in your heart. And this is what God is saying, how he feels about you and how he feels about me. He's thought about you. He's written words about you and he's put it to music so he can sing about you in his heart. That is a peak in the Bible. That is a peak. So, tomorrow is usually called Blue Monday. You wake up in the morning and you've just had a weekend and there's work. Would you not let this verse tonight change your tomorrow morning when you wake up? And have this verse in your mind. The Lord your God is in your midst tomorrow morning. He's right in the middle of your life. If you hate your job, he is right there with you. If you've got difficult things to deal with, sorrows, as you wake up, 
He is with you in your life, your struggles and your disappointments. And God is with you as a mighty one to save. He's not impotent. He's not there just as a philosopher. He is mighty to save and he is with you. And he will rejoice over you with gladness, with sincerity of heart. He has a genuine love for you and care for you so that you must put your heart at rest and you must be quiet before him. Would you not, would you just stop hankering after all the things that the world has to offer? Would you be satisfied in the love of God and his presence in your life? And then would you just finally remind yourself tomorrow morning that tomorrow God is singing about you. He has a song on his heart about you. That is how precious you are to him. And won't you let that put a song in your heart for the Lord tomorrow and for the next day and for the next day until we sing with him in heaven one day. Let's pray. Oh Lord, our God, we are astounded that you would love us and rejoice in us even into the depths of your being so that you sing songs about us in your heart. We do want to have a quiet heart before you and we pray for this Lord, a heart that is quiet before you, trusting you, being satisfied in you alone and all the providences that you bring into our lives. Forgive us for murmurings, for complainings. Forgive us for hankering after the things of the world which do not satisfy when we have a mighty one who is right in the midst of our life and rejoices over us. We praise you. O oh Lord our God, amen. Thank you, Andrew, for those very precious thoughts. Why do we have communion? Why did our Lord Jesus, after that last supper with his disciples, where he broke bread and shared the wine, say, do this in remembrance of me? And why did the early church take that up as a pattern, which we read about in Paul's letters and in the book of Acts? Well, just very few thoughts. Firstly, are we not prone to forget important things. Our lives become so full of our stuff, our agendas, our emotions, our joys, our hurts, our trials, our relationships, our work, our tasks, that we forget the most important thing in the universe, 
the finished work of Jesus Christ. What then shall we say to these things, says Paul in Romans 8.31? If God is for us, who can be against us? That is great encouragement to know that God is for us. We've just heard an awesome opening up of a passage proving that. But what made that possible, brothers and sisters? How can a holy God be near you and sing over you? Well, the next verse tells us, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. There's the gospel that we have to preach to ourselves every morning as we've just been encouraged. Why is it possible? The work is finished. That's why God can rejoice in you. Not because of how amazing you are, how much you prayed, how good you've been working in the, in the church, or the good things you've done to your brothers and sisters. That's not what drew, drew God near to you. It was the finished work of Christ that made that possible. And the verse goes on to say, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him graciously give us all things? And so we are reminded, and we're having this meal together this evening, so that in our hearts and minds every day, the issues that face us, where we feel God's not coming through for us, maybe we are to remind ourselves, well, he gave up his son for you. Is he not going to be with you in power? Is he not going to help you through this trial? And so that's why we have to remind ourselves week by week, month by month, and it's why we do it regularly in this service and in the morning. We take these elements and we remember that God did not spare his own son. So now we're just going to simply take those elements, a reminder that this is for those of you who do belong to Jesus, who have a walk with him, who have repented of your sins. Um, please join us. You are free to in partaking of the elements. If there's anybody without elements that still wants them, uh, just raise your hand and our brother will bring it to you. Are we all sorted? Um, and so we are going to start by taking the bread together. Here at Hillcrest Baptist, we have been baked together into one loaf. We heard about unity this morning. And so as we break this bread and eat of it to remember that God did not spare his own son, but broke his body so that we can be right with him. Um, we do it together. We've been baked together like a loaf. And so let's just bow carefully now in thought, in meditation, in gratefulness, as we take this bread together. Take and eat and do this 
in remembrance of him. And then in your own time, as you remember your own personal walk with God and your own personal salvation, that not only was he dying for his church, but for you and your name over whom he sings and delights. Remember that truth as you take the wine, the juice remembering his blood shed, that you may be right with God forever. Our Father, forgive us for our small thoughts of you. You who did not spare your own son, freely gave him for us, for us seated here this evening. We know this and yet we forget all the things you have added and are continuing to do and will continue to do faithfully until glory. How we thank you. We thank you, Lord, for working in this church, and we just bring to you, as we gather as a family around your table, those whom are struggling. We more easily share our physical struggles, and so we do pray for Sybil Smith as she recovers from her trial of a broken limb. For Sue King as she recovers from severe kidney infection. And for Derek Hasemann as he recovers from a heart and other procedures which have taken place this week. We do pray, Lord, for our dear brothers and sisters that you would restore them soon. But then, Lord, we don't share our, physic, our, our spiritual hurts and heartfelt anguish as easily. We don't have many prayer requests out in the church for those who are depressed, for those who are in anguish over broken relationships, for those who are struggling deeply with a sinful habit. And so we bring those ones before you now whom you know intimately, and pray that you would be so near to them in the midst of their struggle <clears throat> that they may know your love and relief and strength to endure, we pray. Then, Lord, we lift our hearts and minds out of our own church <clears throat> to this country of ours and pray as you have exhorted us to for our leaders. We commend to you our cabinet in the turbulent times we find ourselves, we do pray, Lord, for solid, just rule in this country, that we may worship you and continue to serve you and preach the gospel in peace and freedom.
And so, Lord, as we come now to sing a song of praise, would you part us with your blessing and fill our hearts with the truths that we have heard this evening. For Jesus' sake, amen. After that last supper, we do read in the scriptures that they sang an hymn in the old uh, King James Version. They sang an hymn, and so we now will sing an hymn. Thank you, band. Please stand as we sing our closing, <laughs> um, closing hymn. 